There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've turned into this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us again. If you or someone you know is living with an eating disorder, today's conversation could be a potentially life-saving one. Our guests this week are Dr. Dina Cabrera and Megan Niskern. Megan holds a master's science degree. She's a registered dietitian, a licensed dietitian nutritionist, and a certified eating disorder specialist supervisor. For the past 15 years, Megan has been working in the field of eating disorders, substance use and disorder, and nutrition education. She has eight years of direct care experience, seven years of experience as a director and executive with various treatment centers and programs, and has been an adjunct faculty member at Arizona State University, where she has taught undergraduate and graduate level courses on nutrition, eating disorders, and addictions since 2015. Dr. Dina Cabrera is a clinical psychologist and a certified eating disorder specialist with a wealth of diverse clinical experience, including more than 24 years of treating individuals, families, and groups with a range of psychological and psychiatric disorders. Her specialized training includes neuropsychological and psychological assessment, dialectical behavior therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, acceptance and commitment therapy, and polybagel theory. Dr. Cabrera has served as the president of the International Association of Eating Disorders Professionals and currently is the IAEDP's past president and an executive board member. She's also the co-author of Mom in the Mirror, Body Image, Beauty, and Life After Pregnancy. Dina Cabrera and Megan Niskern, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you so much. So Thank you so much. I had to look up a lot of these things. Some I knew, <laughs> some I didn't. So please forgive my uh, lack of knowledge, I'll say, in the space. And so I, I humbly you know, beg for your forgiveness on that. So let's start with a basic question, because I'm sure there are more than a few misconceptions. How do we define an eating disorder? Well, I think it's a great question, and I'll come from a clinical perspective, uh, as you know, our experience, and but uh, and Megan will come from a nutrition ex- ex- perspective. Um, and the good news is that Megan and I have worked together for a long time, so we've had a lot of similar experiences, and so I'm really happy to be with you today, Megan. Uh, in terms of understanding eating disorders, I think the first thing to remember is that there is the symptomatology uh, that needs to be present to meet criteria for specific eating disorder, like anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, or another type of eating or feeding disorder, which would be what we'd consider ARFID, which is avoidant food restrictive eating disorder. So there's those you know, criteria of symptoms that need to come together to meet, you know, to meet a diagnosis. But then there's this other, um, what we would consider disordered eating, which many, if not majority of those struggling or suffering do so in silent with this disordered, disordered eating that can take on different forms or different presentations, what from dieting chronically to restricting or intermittent fasting, which is possibly affecting their not only psychological well-being, but nutritional uh, well-being and possibly medical. So there's a different um, type of eating disorder that really can be distorted in terms of the way they eat, their relationship with food, body image issues, and of course, their self-esteem. So all that to say, traditionally, we have anorexia, where those who are restricting food and don't get enough energy and are way below or um, their nutritional needs, and of course, are affected medically. And then we have bulimia, who are those who may be binging on a tremendous amount of food and then using compensatory behaviors such as purging uh, through, it could be through self-induced vomiting or through exercise. And then there's the highest prevalent disorder, which is binge eating disorder, uh, which is eating an enormous amount of food, possibly in a short amount of time, having loss of control and 
not necessarily doing compensatory behaviors. So they can all get very confusing. But at the end of the day, I just want people to understand that these are very serious disorders and illnesses and have life-threatening effects. Uh, For instance, it's the second um, highest um, psychiatric disorder that leads to mortality. The, The number one is opiate addiction and abuse, you know, overdose. And this is um, definitely the highest rated for mortality. Megan, Dina just mentioned two eating disorders, anorexia and bulimia, and then she put in their binge eating disorder. Are there more types than just those three? There are. And one of the, the fun things about being a registered dietitian in the space of eating disorder care is we're one of the only professionals that aren't allowed to diagnose And so um, we have to be really familiar with the diagnosis and the criteria of eating disorders, as Dina mentioned, but we also operate within that disordered eating. They don't quite meet the criteria, but there's something significantly wrong with how they're utilizing food and how they cope with things. Um, And so it is important to know all these. So we have anorexia nervosa, we have bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder didn't come in until about 2013, 2014, as it relates to being diagnosable. So this is considered more one of the newer in the sense of how we treat, how we um, utilize insurance, all of those technical pieces, but it is the most common of all the eating disorders. And that's really important to recognize. So binge eating disorder is the most common of the different types of eating disorders out there. It is typically most predominant with males as well, just something to kind of consider. Um, Dina also mentioned RFED, Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder, which is typically diagnosed in adolescents with failure to thrive and sort of an extreme picky eating type of of mentality is viewed in that that regard. We also have OSAFED, I know, other specified feeding and eating disorders. And what I think is kind of important to recognize um, here is that most people don't fit into these criteria perfectly the whole time, right? They'll be having anorexic behaviors and then they'll have bulimia tendencies and then they'll have binge eating tendencies and they'll go back. And that's not week to week necessarily. That's like month to month, year to year, decade to decade, as the body is fighting to stay alive through not allowing them to stay in those behaviors for very long, right? These aren't comfortable behaviors for the most part for most people. And so those would be the eating disorders that have diagnosable um, criteria. And then we have a whole slew of disordered eating, including something called orthorexia nervosa, which is again, not a diagnosis, but a very, very well understood and more kind of research informed um, disordered eating criteria as well. And Megan, you mentioned males a moment ago, we'll get to that later in the show, but something I certainly wouldn't think of. And just staying with you, Megan, one more question. Are there different root causes for each eating disorder or they stem from the same cause or causes? But truthfully, they all stem from the same place. It's just how a person chooses to cope with that particular event. So um, we look at it. I, I was able to author on a paper uh, that talks about the standards of practice for eating disorders for registered dietitians in 2020. So our our governing board, the commission of dietetics does a review every seven to nine years. And so we really took the research and identified four factors that can really emphasize a person's risk factor for an eating disorder, right? So we have genetics, there's a genetic component. We have environment. So like where you live, what's going on in that environment, what your culture, what your social environment is like, all of that. We have malnutrition, malnutrition begets more disordered eating behaviors, right? And then we have this idea of temperament. What kind of person were you born like? I was kind of born sassy and a little confident and a little like talk backy, you know? So like things didn't come at me and impact me in the same way as a person who maybe came up and was born more shy, a little bit more insecure, a lot more self-deprecating, right? There's a lot of different features that can play a role. So when we have an event and that event doesn't have to be an event we all universally see as being traumatic or horrible, an event we can't cope with, an event that we don't know how to handle, and we have these other factors that are sitting there and it just kind of exacerbates this problem because food is something we can control when we feel really out of control. And that within our society of healthfulness, as I air quote that for our listeners and non-viewers, and our obsession with body size, mainly thinness, those 
ideas are promoted through changing our controlled food behaviors in a way that makes us feel like that horrible thing that happened to us maybe isn't as horrible because we've got things in control somewhere else. So it becomes very distorted, but also very interwoven in the person. And that's why so many team members and so much support is needed. Megan, you sound like my 16-year-old daughter, the way you were raised uh, this year at her high school uh, soccer award ceremony. She received the award for Sassy But Classy. So, Whoa, I, I like I'll take that. It. <laughs> yes, that's awesome. She, she was very proud of that. I'm not quite sure how I feel about it, but everyone laughed when she got it, including the coach. So, so we'll live with that. I love it. Quick caveat. I was the where are you Delta when I was in Tri-Delt for my sorority because I refused to go to all the boring meetings. So I took that as like, they know who I am, but I never show up for anything. So, you know, it is, it's all about personality styles and, and how we view ourselves. And then that has a huge impact on how these events cause us to respond. And Dina, back to you, what methods of treatment are effective for anorexia nervosa? Well, and, and there are various. And first and foremost, we would need a multidisciplinary team. So we would have a, you know, a, a therapist, psychologist, psychiatric, psychiatrist might be involved, definitely nutritionist, dietitian, and also a primary care provider. So it does take a team in terms of an approach. You know, and it's unfortunate about 70%, 60 to 70% of individuals who do struggle don't have access to care. So I think that's something to just keep in mind. You know, ideally we would want this team, but in terms of treatment, um, you know, definitely first things first is making sure that they're safe. So, you know, in terms of like if if their behaviors, like in terms of weight. Um, and there's medical or nutritional complications with malnourishment, we would want the doctor to, you know, really work and the dietitian to really work to stabilize them for safety from a medical standpoint. Um, so that would be one component of treatment. Another component in terms of a clinical perspective would be, um, you know, therapies, you know, having a psychologist or a therapist work with them to basically help them learn the skills, again, safety first, but learn the skills to emotionally regulate um, and also uh, build resiliency and build um, hope sometimes often that they can overcome the maladaptive eating patterns in replacing with the coping, you know, healthy patterns. So that's really kind of in a nutshell. There's different approaches. Like I know we'll get to some of that, um, but, you know, we always have to look at what's the first things first in terms of safety. And rather than playing a tennis match and ping-ponging back and forth, you tell us to leave the questions open that did to everyone's sure. defense, sir. Yeah, how, no how, common are, how common are eating disorders? Dina, do you know the current statistics? So go ahead. I mean, one person dies every 57 minutes yeah. is what it's at right now, I think. So mm -hmm. one person dies every 57 minutes from an eating disorder prevalence. Was it like eight to 10% of total population over lifetime? And I think it's up to higher, like 15% yeah. prevalence now. What we do know is since the 1950s, prevalence and occurrence has only continued to increase. So whether that is related to... Um, <laughs> awareness of the disease and more people coming forward because this isn't, it isn't new. This is, we've got dysfunctional and disordered eating practices that go way, 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 way back to the originations of medicine and medicinal practices. But um, in the sense of seeing it as a promoted disease state, seeing mm -hmm. it as something that is ignored and having it be so interwoven in a lot of our other cultural factors, it's a really high prevalence rate. So one person basically every hour. Yes. 24 exactly. people a day, 365 yes. days a year. Yeah. And oftentimes it doesn't get categorized as, or the death may not be categorized secondary to an eating disorder. Um, and so I think that's an, an issue as well. You can't so my, die of an eating disorder is yeah. what she's saying. So you would yes. die of pneumonia. You would die of cardiac arrest or heart failure. Yes. So you wouldn't even a lot of deaths wouldn't necessarily be identified in the statistical arena because we can't put a mental health condition on a death certificate. And so it's yeah. even harder for us to, you know, even with substance use, you could put overdose, you could put right. Yeah. Like the, but you can't do that with an eating disorder. Well, my next question for you was how dangerous are eating disorders, but you just answered that. 
Uh, I had no idea that statistic. So thank you for, for sharing that. I guess maybe more importantly, what are some of the warning signs of eating disorders? Mm. I love that one. Yeah. One of the first things I typically see, or, you know, I always, you know, caution parents to look for is dieting or mood changes. Now that could be, you know, mood changes, you know, you know struggles in school, struggles at work, different difficulties, you know, paying attention. Uh, those kinds of issues can be attributed to other things as well, but you'll start to see, you know, different behavior changes related to your approach to food, you know, whether they're skipping meals, perhaps, eating a lot of food that's different from their regular pattern of eating. So you're always looking for modifications, changes, shifts, whether it be in their approach to food or in their literally in their weight uh, or and or their mood. So that's those are the common kind of warning signs. You know, but it's very hard to tell sometimes. I mean, it's it is a disorder of secrecy. Uh, I just had a parent yesterday say, I, I don't know where her weight was. I don't know. This is an adolescent. I don't know where her weight was. I, I, I it's like all of a sudden it just changed. And so it can happen very quickly and and it can happen secretly. So there are, yes, safeguards and there are ways that we would recommend to, you know, how would you keep an eye on this? What would you look for? And definitely, you know, mood, isolation, um, any kind of specific trauma that has happened or stressor that may, you know, affect the child or the person. And any of those, sometimes just by sure nature of trying to cope and function, you know, nutrition or, or, you know, approach to food may change, you know, anybody who goes through a loss or a traumatic experience, you know, their appetite or their, their hunger and fullness cues, or the way that they go about trying to just get through the, the, the struggle, their, their food and their mood is going to be affected. So those are always something to keep in mind that, you know, we want to make sure the person is coping through these stressors in as best way as they can with regard to nourishment to their bodies. I want to offer, um, if they're still in school, right. Great. Um, middle school, typically high school, typically those are when I see a lot of them coming in and, um, that's definitely the the earliest time frame of susceptibility for these behaviors. But a few things to be looking out for too are any kind of bullying about their body, about how they appear, about how they look in any way, shape, or form. And not all adolescents are willing to talk to their parents about their struggles at school with social environments. If they sit with a community of kids that don't eat ever, right? A lot of parents will have their kids come home and just be like, I'm going to get healthy. And we all think, okay, great. They're going to stop eating you know, quote, junk food when they get home from school. And it's like, no, they kind of need that junk food with teenagers. Like we don't want. So then they start buying some of those diety foods, some of the alternative foods, some of the fake foods, they go gluten-free, they go dairy-free, they go vegetarian. And there's nothing wrong with those things innately, but they're doing it just for the sake of doing it. They don't really know why or how they've seen it or they've read it. And so it's, it's taking what they're saying and, and, pausing for a moment and saying, what is healthy to you? And what do you think that's going to look like in our home? And how, like, what are we trying to do here? Um, and I, Dina mentioned mood. She mentioned the food things. I think you can also there, when she talks about the mood, there's a shift. Like when you used to talk to them a certain way, now they're like snapping all the time. Like everything's a big deal. There is parents, very much notice that there is a shift. And I want to emphasize what Dina said. Sometimes it can just happen. It's not like you're a bad parent. It's not like you haven't been there. It's just all of a sudden, one day you look at this kid and you're like, what is going on here? And I have three right now that have come over the last month to my practice that are right in that threshold of it can spiral really quickly. And it can spiral really quickly in an adolescent body that doesn't know how to cope with those changes. It is harder for those immediate changes as we get older in our 20s, 30s, and 40s, but that also means we more get more desperate with our behavior, right? So it, it all has a space, but those warning flags really are, you can observe changes in your mm -hmm. friends and your family members' mood, coloring, the way their face sits, 
there's definite concerns. And when you see someone struggling, the idea is to say, is there anything you need right now? Right. It's not about fixing it or simplifying it. Um, but we make lots of comments about people's bodies nowadays, and we have to stop doing that. We have to really expand our variety of what is normal in a body because so many kids are susceptible to this because of the way that they're treated in a young body. Um, and then that stays with them for a long, long time. I think that's a good point. I want to piggyback on that in terms of our home environment, because you know, we're probably, uh, we're about a, a month and a half into the new year. And it's important to recognize that, you know, everybody starts off the new year with new year's resolutions and, and uh, goals for health. And that could include dieting or working out or being more active. Um, and, 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 and I'm not to discredit that, but I want to be aware that Oftentimes eating disorders start with that diet, let's get healthy, and then it's taken to the extreme and it happens quickly. So I want to be mindful of our attitude and approach toward food and, and weight and diets, you know, in the home, because those messages can be very triggering to an, you know, that could cause the start of an eating disorder. Megan, I want to go back to something you referenced a moment ago in terms of adolescents and how they they view their bodies. We've had some shows recently in terms of teen mental health and, and mental health generically. Uh, but you always talk about how Barbie, yeah. you know, for 40 years, Barbie was, I'll say the, not the right phrase, pardon me, but you know, the poster child of what uh, a girl is air quotes again, supposed to look like. Finally, Mattel has fixed that thankfully. Um, but a question for both of you, you know, as we were in lockdown during COVID, I had three kids home from school, two were teenage uh, girls. My son was seven when we started. As they transitioned back into school, um, both of the, the teenagers back into high school, have you seen a spike? Megan, you just talked a moment ago about seeing three new patients this week. Have you seen, seen a spike in the, the post-pandemic world as kids get reacclimated back into society? 100%. It got real bad in COVID. I, I literally opened my private practice, which I had avoided doing for years and years and years in March of 2020, not knowing what was to come. And you know, haven't stopped since then. It is, it is a crisis and it's a crisis, um, that really it, no kid is, is, uh, able to avoid because you bring up Barbie, but then let's add social media to that mix. That's Barbie times 5,000 on crack, you know, like Steroids, it's, exactly. right, it's just, it is, um, a melting pot for perfectionistic viewing of images. And then we have parents and generations before current parents um, that have been fixated on weight loss and fixated on diets and fixated on looking a certain way and fixating on appearance. And you have those messages at home and then you have those messages from society. And then you have your friends that don't eat and your friends that work out and your friends that are perfect and your friend. And really quickly for an adolescent in particular, a young developing brain, that's too many messages to process. There's too much to try to navigate. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to navigate any of it. And I'm just going to get as thin as I can so that people value me and so that people like me and so that I feel better. And so the more time that we really have in front of mirrors, the more time we have sitting with our thoughts and not feeling productive and functional, the more time that we have to question if we're good enough or, or we're okay, then the more that will exacerbate extreme behaviors. And again, we go out in society and people see us and then say, you look so great. And they don't know that you're not eating and you're not doing all these things. And so you think this is good. This is what I've got to be doing. And it, it, it doesn't end unless someone intervenes most of the time. Of course, no treatment obviously can be 100% guaranteed to succeed. What is the rate of reoccurrence for girls and women who are treated for eating disorders? And does it differ at all according to the disorder or for males who are treated? I'm going to say two things and then Dina, you can go. I'm going to say the statistic I know is six to eight times in treatment for an eating disorder before a really solid state of recovery is not uncommon. Every time someone goes in, they take something new away from that experience. So to go to treatment multiple times is not uncommon. Also, the longer you have the disorder, the harder it is to get to a place of operating without the disorder. So decades in is going to be a lot harder to overcome for whatever we call that full recovery. Dina? I know I agree. I think that in terms of 
you, you know, you were talking about the continuation, you know, or the, the continuity of care, you know, oftentimes it can start at a higher level of care, it can start at a lower level of care. It can also, meaning outpatient therapist, dietitian to inpatient, you know, 24 hour care in a facility. Uh, but that's exactly right. You know, we see, we see about a third of those. It takes, you know, a few, few years not to discourage anyone, but it does take time in an outpatient practice um, and practicing new behaviors and learning, you know, how to build your identity outside of weight, shape, and um, food. We've been talking to Dr. Dina Cabrera and Megan Niskern, and I'll be right back after a short break. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you inspired by stories about personal empowerment, well-being, and the motivation to achieve more? Get ready for Next Steps Forward with Chris Meek. Each week, Chris will talk with experts and icons from different walks of life who personify energy, direction, excitement, and purpose as they take bold steps forward in pursuit of excellence and service to others. Tune in to Next Steps Forward, Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But don't forget to make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. We are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guests today are Dr. Dina Cabrera and Megan Niskern. Megan Niskern is a registered dietitian, a licensed dietitian nutritionist, certified eating disorder specialist supervisor, and university-level educator. Dr. Dina Cabrera is a clinical psychologist and a certified eating disorder specialist with a wealth of diverse clinical experience, including more than 24 years of treating individuals, families, and groups with a range of psychological and psychiatric disorders. We were talking before the break about males with eating disorders. I suspect it's hard to know the answer to this question, but can we guesstimate how often eating disorders go undiagnosed and untreated for males? We have a, a general idea, and this um, this research is actually a little bit outdated. But generally, if you look, you know, if you Google it on the internet, they'll give you a rate of about ten percent. Ten percent of those diagnosed are males. But I'm I'm here to tell you that that is probably a very underdiagnosed or um, rate that they they have come to us with. Because I know, and even in the treatment center that I currently um, work with Rosewood and then also in my outpatient practice, I have males and it's more than 10%. So I think there's a stigma out there that still exists that males do not get eating disorders, that it's a girl's disease. And I put those in quotes because I'll tell you that, you know, eating disorders does not discriminate. They exist in all different body types, genders, um, ethnicities, from all, you know, not just in America, from all across the country. And I think that's something to really be be mindful of. It doesn't just look one way and in one specific, you know, gender or population or ethnicity. They, they, it really is problematic and they're very, you know, serious. So in terms of males, though, 
one thing that you might see again, if you look up or what, you know, who, what is the profile, if you will, for those males who have eating disorders and you might see those who maybe want to get bigger, like we call that, you know, not a diagnosed term, like bigorexia, who are focused on, you know, and obsessed with muscles in a sense. And that can be in itself its own disordered, you know, lead to its own disordered eating with lots of supplements and, you know, and that could be problematic. And Megan can certainly talk on that. And then we also have uh, another set with those males who um, may may want this very lean, very lean body mass. And again, leading to its own compulsive behaviors around food. But in general, honestly, from what I've, you know, you know, experienced in working with males, they're very much like all genders, like those, you know, in female bodies or all genders that the underlying issue is very much the same, you know, fear, you know, difficulties with weight, you know, fear about, you know, their body image, the underlying issue of maybe, you know, some trauma or depression or anxiety. So the underlying issue is very much the same, no matter what gender is what my experience has been. Yeah. And I I would add that, um, Dina mentioned a lot of times males will be trying to gain weight and gain muscle, whereas females will traditionally be trying to lose weight, right. And look smaller. And so that becomes more of a risk that we think, Oh gosh, look how small that person is. And we don't often look and think, Oh, look at how big and muscular unhealthy they are. However, there is a phenomenon happening right now in the bodybuilders world with very, very, very young, sudden death. Um, somebody else just died recently and I'm not even in that world, but it was a big shock to the, the world of bodybuilding. So we have to be careful because with males, I need to ask how many supplements you're taking, what kind of supplements, supplements you've done in the past. I would say that the, the underlying and the why isn't so different, but the way that it shows up and the way they're willing to talk about it, males, it does definitely have a different approach than the way that we um, initially work with a female. Males are, are more tends to be funny with food, especially at young ages. Like, you know, a guy will eat a whole piece of pizza with his friends, like just to prove he could eat the pizza. And that's not disordered by nature unless they're doing this every week or, you know, like, or every day and there's a problem. But it is really about looking at the dynamic and how they view food and how they view their body in the same way that we do with females and the way that they're malfunctioning and how they fuel and feed and care for their body. Um, and as Dina mentioned, the stats are dated at 10%, but if we figure we see it at 15 or 25%, it really shows you the degree with to which um, males aren't getting the same attention. And, you know, you really have to think males didn't even come into the diet world until Atkins in the early 2000s. So men even being a part of this diet culture and a part of this fixation and focus on food and healthfulness is a little bit of a newer one than the female one, which is, you know, goes back to statistically the 1940s. So it, it's just really different, but also very much the same. You know, Megan, a moment ago, Dina mentioned that the stigma associated with males, and you both talked about how, for the most part, it's males putting weight on and, and building body mass and building muscle. You touched a little bit on it, but are the treatment methods different for males with eating disorders in females? No, they, they will be in treatment the same. They'll receive the same stuff. And again, it's more about how we as clinicians approach and talk about it with them. Um, I will say that it's probably helpful to have mixed groups too, because then they can hear how other people talk about it and how other people relate to it. Because men, when I work with, with males, they don't understand that there, there could be an emotional connection to how they're using the food. Whereas us females are very much like, oh yeah, I know what's going on, or I'm numbing out purposely, or I, there's like a quick, the, with men, it it's, um, a I would say just not often as thought out. It's just a lot more like, this is how I'm going to do it. This is what I'm going to do. This is how I'm going to follow through. So to have them in a mixed environment where they can connect a little bit more and hear others speak and, and express better is definitely one of the things that I've seen be really helpful for a lot of males um, in getting support and treatment in this environment. And what, what is the best way to help and support someone who has an eating disorder? Mm. Are you saying this from a clinician perspective or a family or friend <laughs> perspective? Which direction do you want to go here? All of the above. <laughs> um, 
I'll start Dina and then I'll kind of throw it over to you. So my first thing is if you're a family or a friend and you notice something, you really have to go in knowing that they're not going to get better until they want to start getting better and really forcing people into care. I know adolescents, it's different. They don't have a say, they don't understand, but the more there's a willingness, the better off someone's going to be period. So coming in and saying, I see this, I'm worried about this using lots of I statements. So you're not pushing anything on them would be really important. Um, And then letting them know that you're going to be there no matter what is always really important. There's a lot of fear of not being loved or not being liked if they don't have this eating disorder, if they aren't doing these practices. Um, And so that that can be critical. Dina, do you want to do clinical? Oh, I'll try. Well, I was going to start with the parent perspective too. So it's, I'll take off my clinical psychology hat and put my mom hat on. And, you know, it's a really hard very difficult thing to address with kiddos, you know, even adolescents. So let's, let's, let's take about 19 and under, you know, when you're seeing disordered behavior or you're concerned about certain patterns that maybe have been exacerbated. So like over the holiday break, you know, everybody maybe hopefully maybe spent some time with their loved ones and you're starting to see changes in their behavior and their attitude toward food, or maybe even changes in your, their weight that you're concerned about. You don't want to focus on their body or their weight at all. Um, in fact, it, it really is, um, the do the don'ts are, you know, don't talk about your own weight. Don't talk about others weight. Certainly don't talk about your, your children's weight. You know, you're gaining weight, you're losing weight. It's all about, we really want to stay focused on balance and, you know, health, if you will, and things that you may be concerned about. I'm noticing, I'm noticing, and I'm concerned is coming from that place. Like I'm, I'm seeing this change and I'm concerned about you. Um, because I'm wondering if it's coming from a place of anxiety or worry, or you're maybe eating out of boredom, you know? So those are very delicate things because we don't certainly want to comment on their bodies because it's more about the patterns, um, and, and certainly not on a number. So it's very, take it from a mom perspective, it's really hard when you see a change, especially now you're going 19 and older, right? You have an adult child or a friend or, or a, you know, a loved one that you're worried about. It's always coming from a place of compassion, like, hey, are you okay? I'm noticing that there's there's been a, you're distressed or there's been a change, but again, staying off you know, what they look like, you know, their weight, or, you know, you know, I noticed that you gained 30 pounds. You never want to say that, even though that may be, you know, some, what you're concerned about. So it's more about the patterns. It's, it's difficult. I say the first things first is getting them support. um, And, you know, going in and talking to someone because the earlier you catch it, the better we don't want those, um, those behavior patterns to be entrenched for long. You want to try to break that cycle as fast as you can. You know, clinically, I always just say what I've noticed, you know, um, I see that you're distressed. I see that your, your mood has changed. I'm noticing, you know, I'm noticing that you're isolating a lot. Let's talk about that. And how is that manifesting with in, in your body or food? I love your, I'm noticing that suggestion because obviously it's not easy as a friend, a parent, a loved one, et cetera, to talk to somebody when you see something changing like that. And so I just think it, it, something as simplistic as that is just extremely helpful. So thank you for that simple phrase. Well, it is. And I'm, you know, I'm, I have two children who's, you know, who are adults now, really they're adults um, and behavior patterns has changed a bit. I've noticed. And Uh, and I've been, and I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm a psychologist. I know how to deal with this, but it's really hard when it's your loved one and you're seeing something that you're concerned about it. So I always take it from a place of, you know, I, I care about you. And this is, this is something that I think is worth paying attention to, you know, cause I'm concerned. I see a difference. Yeah. Not in their body. <laughs> I see a difference in their approach to food, or I see their difference in that you're isolating more, something like that. 
And how does someone know when they or someone they love needs inpatient treatment? Oh, this is a good, this is a great question. Um, this is a hard question um, because the first thing, you know, that, so we do have criteria, if you will, for different levels of care. So inpatient definitely has criteria. If you look up at the American Psychiatric Association guidelines for eating disorder uh, care for inpatient, there'll be a specific level, you know, criteria for medical, nutritional, you know, definitely psychological. There's about 10 components that they've included, which would be, you know, where is their, their weight? Where's their heart rate, for instance, nutritionally, how, how much are they, getting in per day, how many times um, are they purging, for instance? So what are the compensatory? What's the intensity of it? So we definitely look at out in continuum. Isolation, definitely mood issues with suicidality. So the more severe those 10 components are, if you will, lack of access to care, of course, if they can't get outpatient care, um, that's, that's a concern. So definitely those criteria would indicate, you know, what level of care they would meet, you know, be helpful, but, you know, those, you know, any treatment provider who is a specialist or has understanding of eating disorder will be, t- you know, their job would be able to be able to assess that and, and be able to determine based on the severity of symptoms. Yeah. And Megan, that last question begs another question. How often does the person with an eating disorder know and accept that they need inpatient treatment or any type of treatment for that matter? <laughs> they, they really don't at first. It takes, it does for a lot of people take a while to get to that point because I go back to the fact that a lot of this is normalized by society, right? So they're like, what's the big deal that I only eat this much? I see these people eat this much all the time, or I see this all the time, or I, th- so I think one of the the greatest difficulties is again, the normalization of disordered eating that we already have in our society. And that makes it harder for people who take those normalized behaviors and then go further to understand that that's not a good thing, that there can be a problem with being too focused on your health. Right. And so, um, so a lot of times we, when that comes up, when there is just, um, a strong fear, because that's usually what it is, right? Of of having to go to that space. We spend more time building that rapport and building that trust and building that understanding that this isn't going to work for where you are right now. And usually that's already happened too. It's a very, um, it is a very tricky game of chess to support someone not only in their eating disorder recovery, but through the process that is eating disorder recovery. A lot of what we do as professionals is guide families through that journey. Um, And a lot of what we do as professionals is know other professionals and other treatment centers and other facilities, because I'm never going to just think, oh, they're going to come to me and I'm going to fix them. I'm thinking they're going to come to me and I hope this works out that we won't have to do something more. Right. Um, And so I will also offer sometimes the parent is more fearful than the child. The child will be ready to go, but the parent doesn't want them to go, right? They don't want their kid to be away, which as a parent with two young kids, I get that. But then as a person who's seen eating disorders, I don't get that. And and so it, it is very much a part of our clinician role to be in the trenches of these decisions with these individuals. So they don't feel like they have to navigate it on their own. Right. And, and Megan, you sort of answered my next question. You're talking about parents not wanting, wanting them to go. Are there times when parents just won't accept that their child has an eating disorder, even when it's obvious to professionals? And then what can that professional or concerned friend do in those cases? Oh, yeah. We see this yeah. often in different ways. Go, Dina. Yeah, it's it's... I think there's a balance as a professional working with parents between you know, giving them the reality of the why there's a sense of urgency because they are so dangerous and also balancing with compassion and knowing how difficult this is. 
Um, so I think that, you know, I, I, I always want to caution on the side of safety. Like I keep saying about like, we've got to make sure they're medically and, and psychologically and nutritionally safe, you know, and that oftentimes is a, a trip to the hospital, you know, to make sure that labs are in order, but you know, my, my main goal with parents, because it is like Megan said, is usually out of fear either that they don't want to send or it's a, a phase that I often hear that like, this is just a phase. It's probably for attention. Um, and I, I do a lot of educating about adults and that, I mean, sorry, eating disorders. And that comes from the stigma of eating disorders. It comes from our society and our culture about messages about dieting. Uh, and it comes from our stigma about weight and, and then we can go on a whole another show about weight stigma, but, you know, we're so inundated that when someone tries like a kiddo tries to get healthy, uh, and it's gone to extreme, it, it just doesn't seem like really an eating disorder. You know, how serious can this be? We're in this diet culture. We're used to this, you know? So oftentimes what we say as professional is countercultural to what, what, um, you know, the, the media is telling us or certainly social media. I just want to say one thing too. Did you know that there's over 900,000 messages, pro eating disorder messages on social media that kids get exposed to? Um, there's a big campaign within the eating disorder coalition to get big tech companies to regulate these messages because it's really influential to our kids today. So I, I spent a lot of time, you know, educating parents on the seriousness of eating disorders, what they're being exposed to from a social media standpoint, all the co-occurring disorders, anxiety, fee, uh, depression, suicide um, that is prevalent with those with eating disorders. And then certainly about the nutritional aspect that is possibly affecting their growth and, and their health. So all of that together through education and persistence, you know, hopefully they can come to an understanding that this is serious and we need to take action. You know, you talked about big tech and at the beginning of COVID, I thought social media was the best thing for teenagers because it kept them connected and engaged. And now I can't do a Google search without seeing 4.9 out of five articles anti-social media and anti-big tech, to your point, because of what they've done, mental health crises, uh, suicide ideation, to your point about nutrition, eating disorders. And so uh, count me in that battle for big tech, and we'll get to policy in a moment, but uh, I totally agree with you. You've each devoted years of your lives, you know, combined roughly 40 years to the field of treating eating disorders. What drew each of you to invest so much of your heart, soul, time, and energy into a profession that doesn't always have happy outcomes and all too often seems outcomes that end tragically. Oh, I just got tearful. Um, working with patients for, with eating disorders has been um, just a privilege and a blessing because I think for so many reasons. One is it's a complicated illness. And um, when you're in the trenches with someone, who is really struggling and suffering. And then you see them start to, you know, blossom and, and find the light and you make little steps that certainly become big steps and you see this transformation. I mean, it's so rewarding because I know they come from the depths of, of hell oftentimes. Um, and so I think seeing that transformation and seeing that growth is tremendously rewarding. I think working with you know, those who struggle with eating disorders or some of the, are, are the bravest people I've ever known. And I think that, you know, inspires me every day. Um, and honestly, I'm not just saying this, but recovery is possible. Uh, I also think it's rewarding to work with, you know, a team like working with Megan and coming together and brainstorming and tackling, you know, the issue together and, and working with a team of professionals has also been uh, incredibly uh, rewarding because I learned so much and you just, every person who comes in the door, it's not like their eating disorder is unique. They're of course their story is unique and it's not a cookie cutter approach, right? You have to figure out that's the art of it, of figuring out how am I going to help 
this person move forward and everybody has their own story. And so together, you know, we navigate that. And I think that keeps it, keeps me um, invested so much in, in the work. Dina, I get emotional on it. I know, uh, I didn't expect that. <laughs> yeah, make me emotional. My and, work here is done. No, right. It's true though. This is something, it is a passion. And I see people come into the field either having struggled in the past or having wanted to do this work and they're here for a, a year or so. And then they think, nope, not for me, you know, and that's fine. That's totally fine. That that doesn't need to happen. Um, really for me, it it came down to I connected to this more than I thought I did. I'm I'm surprised I didn't ever acquire an eating disorder um, through my life and through my trials and tribulations in, in the food home environment I grew up in. And I find that, um, like Dina said, people can get to a place where they don't have to exist in a torturous mind, mind fog of like having to control this narrative around food in your body all the time. And I think that it is a disease everyone something everyone needs support around because our culture promotes this dysfunction and it's really hard to point that out to people but once you see how much of this is out there you can't unsee it and so when i show up every day i'm not showing up for work right i'm showing up to talk about and to support and to help things that i'm already passionate about to begin with and so it it doesn't ever really other than notes it doesn't ever feel like work. Um, it's just a, a really beautiful ability to connect with people. And for a long period of time, and that's not just the clients, as Dina mentioned, we're a really big, but really small community of providers. And they're some of the most amazing people on the planet. So we're just really lucky that we get to be included in these conversations. Well, thank you both for the incredible work that you do. You know, I truly appreciate that. We have about two minutes left and I just touched on a moment ago. What policy changes do we need to empower communities and individuals to become aware of, prevent, and treat eating disorders? Oh, we need more. We need more recognition from our government <laughs> on the Hill, and we need understanding that there needs to be uh, funding for research and training and education. That's kind of how I'll sum it up because. We've had different bills, if you will, to to get funding. I mean, we're, we've started with in the military world, you know, trying to get, um, you know, understanding and training in, in that realm uh, and get funding. But I think we have a long way to go. Uh, you know, Parity Act was was um, passed. So mental health conditions such as eating disorder would be treated the same as medical illnesses from an insurance standpoint. But as far as, you know, funding for research, I think we're in the infancy stage and we have a long way to go. We really need standardized care um, and we need data. We need data. And in order to open up those um, database, if you will, we need funding. So it all, you know, comes back, but we need more of our legislators and congressmen and senators and uh, governors to be understanding that this is a world health issue. It really is. Dr. Dina Cabrera and Megan Niskern, thank you so much for being with us today. And again, thank you for the very important work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Chris Meek. This is Next Steps Forward. We're out of time today. We'll see you next Tuesday, same place, same time. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.